This morning we're going to be finishing up the, the second chapter of the, the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible and you want to grab it, that's where we'll be. We'll be finishing up uh, the, 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 the second chapter in, in John's Gospel. Um, the main focus of where we're going to be this morning, just to kind of tip you off, let you know where we're headed, um, we're going to be hoping to see uh, the sovereignty of our Savior. Uh, as we've as we've looked at the 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 various aspects of who Jesus is in this first couple of chapters of John, we've seen various things about him. But this, this morning, our focus is going to be primarily on on his sovereignty. Uh, and I thought it would be useful, helpful to maybe define some terms to come to a, a common agreement of what that me, that word means. I think sovereign perhaps is not a word we use a lot in our common conversation, and it can have a various it can have a, a variety of different meanings. When I think of sovereign, maybe the first thing that comes to my head is uh, is uh, kings and queens, the kings and queens of different countries. Um, we don't have one of those here, but there are many countries around the world that still have monarchies, and the the king or the queen of that country is referred to as a, as a sovereign. Um, it used to mean that that particular person had absolute authority, that that person was the absolute ruler, that they had the power of life and death over their subjects. That may still be true in some countries, but you know the the, the point of reference that I have is our uh, is our British cousins, and I know that although uh, Queen Elizabeth still has a lot of authority, she still has a lot of influence. She does not have in any way, shape, or form a sovereign control over that country. She doesn't have the power of life or death over her subjects anymore. That's just not something that's part of their practice. So when we talk about sovereign, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the sovereignty of a king or a queen. Um, Sometimes we talk about the sovereignty of nations, which means that nations in and of themselves have the control over what goes on within their borders, that they have autonomy from the other countries in the world. I think as our world becomes increasingly uh, interconnected, that's not so true anymore. There's so many different treaties that are, that are binding different countries together in different ways. So that, uh, that concept of what it means to be sovereign maybe isn't so much what we're thinking of. When we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about God's sovereignty. And God, unlike Queen Elizabeth, does have ultimate power. God, unlike Queen Elizabeth, does have the power of life and death over all of his subjects. Unlike nations in our world today, God is entirely autonomous. God is completely other, completely removed from us. He is not us. And that's what we're talking about when we, when we talk about the sovereignty of God. I, I looked up a couple of definitions just to, to, to maybe be even a little more helpful. This is from uh, Desiring God's website. This is their definition of what sovereignty is. When we say God is sovereign, we mean He is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. Nothing can successfully stop any act or any event or design or purpose that God intends to bring about. Or this from, uh, from the Gospel Coalition. The sovereignty of God is the fact that He is the Lord over creation. As sovereign, He exercises His rule. This rule is exercised through God's authority as King, His control over all things, and His presence within His covenantal people and throughout His creation. And then one last definition. I, I, I forgot I was going to greet you this morning. Happy Reformation Day. 
you know, happy Halloween too. Um, but this is, uh, this is from Martin Luther, I think, appropriately. This is uh, from his, uh, his book, The Bondage of the Will. He says, this is essentially necessary and wholesome for Christians to know. That God foreknows nothing by contingency, but that he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his immutable, eternal, and infallible will. And that's what we're talking about when we think about uh, sovereignty. Now, we just quoted the Christ hymn together, and we know from the Christ hymn from Philippians chapter 2 that in a sense or in, in, in some aspects, Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. That when he took upon human flesh, he, he was willing to set aside some aspects of what it meant to be God. You know, think of, he, he was no longer omnipresent. He couldn't be at all places at the same time. He was bound by his human form. He was bound by time and space in ways that, that God is not. But we're going to see this morning that he did not jettison all of his divinity. That In fact, there were, there were substantial parts of his divinity that he maintained. There were things that he was that he continued to be sovereign over, even in his human form. Now, John, sort of out of the gate, gave us some guidelines. He told us at the very beginning, that in the beginning, that there was the Word, and that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He didn't want us to be questioning in any way that, that Jesus Christ himself is divine. But he also told us that the Word took flesh. And, and dwelt among us and was for a time limited by time and space as we are. So it's, it's on that basis, it's, be, it's within those parameters that we take a look at, what, uh, at the sovereignty of Jesus this morning. And we're going to look at two things, just, just two points. Um, the, uh, the sovereignty of Christ over his own sacrifice and the sovereignty of Christ over our salvation. So I pray that as we get into into God's Word this morning. That is what we will see. So let me pray for us, and we'll uh, we'll open God's Word. Let me me do this. Let me read it first. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word to honor it? I'm actually going to back up just a little bit, get a running start so we get some context. We're going to start in chapter chapter 2, verse 13, and then our text for this morning will pick up in verse 18. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we need eyes to see. 
So I pray this morning that by your word you would show us ourselves and that in your word you would show us our Savior. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Be seated. All right. Our sovereign Savior. That's what we're titling this message this morning. As I said, we first want to consider his sovereignty over his sacrifice. In the context, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. And at the beginning of verse 18, we see the word so. It's a, it's a therefore, it's a because. Because of what Jesus had just done, the Jews had a question for him. The Jewish leaders, perhaps the, the temple authorities. It's not exactly clear who these Jews were, but it was someone who was uh, in authority over where Jesus was, still there in the temple confines, apparently. And it says, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I think what we're seeing here is a question from those temple authorities asking Jesus by what authority he did what he just did. He just came in and, and overturned tables and cast out the money changers and he, and he cast out those who were selling the sacrificial animals and they want to know, who, who do you think you are? It's a who do you think you are question. They ask him for a sign. They say, by what sign are you, what sign are you going to show us that, that establishes your authority for doing what you just did? Now, we're going to see as we go through this passage that Jesus is not particularly enamored with signs for sign's sake. He's not, he's not particularly enamored with, with signs just for the sake of signs. In fact, back in, in Matthew's gospel, there's a similar situation, this time with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus has been teaching, and the scribes have a challenge for him. Some of the scribes and Pharisees, this is in Matthew chapter 12, picking up in verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. As you can see, he's not all that thrilled about giving signs to people. He says this, But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it's another similar situation where Jesus is being asked to, to, to show his bona fides, to somehow express in something tangible, something visible, that he has the authority to do the things he's been doing. And interestingly enough, Jesus in this case doesn't chastise them like he did in Matthew. He just gives them a sign. He tells them what the sign is going to be. Jesus' answer was, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. There's a sign for you. You want a sign? There it is. Destroy this temple. Three days I'll, I'll raise it back up. There's some interesting things about what Jesus says here. We're going to learn a little bit more. There's going to, John's going to explain it for us. Um, what was interesting to me is this word destroy, which is actually an imperative. I stopped and thought about that. This, this is a command. Jesus doesn't say, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. He tells them, to the, to the authorities gathered there in the temple, he says, destroy this temple. Do it. You want to see a sign? Go ahead and destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And to me, that speaks to Jesus' sovereignty, his authority over his own sacrifice. Because as John tells us, he's speaking of the temple of his body. The authorities don't get it. 
They think, this is a very strange thing to say. You're standing in the midst of this, this glorious temple that has taken 46 years to, to build, and you're telling us that, you can, that if we knock it down, you'll build it back up in three days? That isn't, that's not possible, Jesus. You're talking nonsense. Jesus says, well, Jesus doesn't say, but John tells us that he's not speaking about the physical temple. He's not talking about the building. He's talking about his body. He's saying, destroy me. In fact, he's commanding them, destroy me. And in three days, I, notice the I, I will raise it up. To me, this, it speaks over Jesus' authority, Jesus' sovereignty over the, over the, entire, the entirety of his sacrifice, saying, destroy me. I command you to destroy me, and I will raise, it, I will raise up. I will raise myself up, speaking of the temple of his body. He says this um, in John chapter 10. This is Jesus also speaking, verses 17 and 18. It says, this, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. It's pretty clear that Jesus has sovereignty over, over his own sacrifice. He commands them to destroy his body, and he says... When the time is right, three days later, I am going to raise my body up again. We've already had hints of this, by the way, in John's gospel. A couple of times already, back in chapter 1, well, when John introduces Jesus, what does he call him? He calls him the Lamb of God. I think the people hearing that would have made a connection. Maybe not a complete connection, but, but lambs were made for sacrifice. When John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God, he was introducing him as a sacrifice. And I don't know that everyone present at those times made that connection fully, but that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus was, and he has full authority over that sacrifice. The same John who wrote our gospel also wrote the book of Revelation, and John tells us in the book of Revelation in chapter 13 that there is a book in heaven, and the book is entitled, The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Jesus, Jesus was, was slain, slain before, before the foundation, the foundation of, the world, of the world as if, as if, it, as if was it was already, already done. done. It was as if it was, as as if it was already, already accomplished. accomplished. I think Jesus, I think Jesus is, saying is saying something, something similar, similar here. here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be going a, sacrifice, a sacrifice, but I am sovereign, sovereign over that over sacrifice. That sacrifice. That's why, That's why Peter was, Peter was able, able to say in his sermon, in his sermon on, the, on, the, on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost that Jesus, Jesus was, was delivered, delivered up according, according to the definite, definite plan, plan and foreknowledge of God. God. This, wasn't this wasn't some, some sort of mistake. mistake. wasn't, wasn't some, some, sort of, sort of, some sort of some aberration. aberration. wasn't some, wasn't some, some sort, sort of plan, plan B. B. As if, as, if, as if God, God had, had, had one plan, plan for redemption, redemption in the Old Testament and that didn't work. And so they went with plan B with Jesus and his sacrifice. And gee, if people would just listen to Jesus, Jesus when he was on earth, maybe, maybe he, he wouldn't have even had to go to the cross. Gosh, that, that, was, that maybe was, maybe was plan C. C. I, don't I don't know. No, no not, at all. not at all. Jesus, Jesus is the lamb, the lamb who was slain before the, before the foundation of the earth. It's always, always been, been plan A. That our sins would be atoned for. That our sins, that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And then we see that there was a result. 
says in 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Kind of, kind of, kind of threw down on the people that were gathered there. They didn't get what he was talking about. You know what? You know what? His disciples didn't get what he was talking about either. They didn't see in the moment what he meant. I'm sure they were scratching their heads just as much as the authorities were. But we do know that they came to see. They came, came to know, know verse 22, 22 says, that when, when he was raised, raised from the dead, when his, when resurrection, his resurrection was fully accomplished, fully accomplished his, his, his disciples remembered. remembered. It was, it was, it was brought, brought back to their remembrance, remembrance, I believe. He remembered, he remembered that, that he said, he said this, this. They believed, they believed the, scripture, the scripture, and they believed, and they believed the, word the word that Jesus, that Jesus spoke. spoken. The result, the result of this sovereignty of over-sacrifice that Jesus has is faith. Faith was engendered. Maybe not, Maybe not completely in that, in that moment, moment, but later, but later after, after, the, the, after, the, after the, the disciples realized, realized what he was talking about. Some three years later, perhaps, they remembered. I think they remembered because when, what Jesus promised them, that when the Holy Spirit came, he would bring to their remembrance. I think that was happening to them. Also says that they believe the Scripture. It doesn't say what specific scriptures, but, they're, but, the, but the entirety of the Old Testament, Jesus says, points to him. And so I, I don't know what specific scriptures they remember, but they remembered things about the scripture that pointed to Jesus in his sacrifice, that pointed to Jesus and his willingness to give himself and his authority to, to raise himself. And it says they believe Jesus' word. That, that faith was engendered through, through their remembrance through the recall of what Jesus had said, and it was, it was engendered through their remembrance of what the Scriptures taught about him. So, first, Jesus, our Savior, sovereign over his sacrifice. And then the story turns a little bit of a corner. Um, a puzzling corner, perhaps. At least, I think, on first or second or third or tenth or... Maybe 50th reading, this next passage is a bit of a head-scratcher. At least, it, at least it was for me. This is what John records next. He says, Now when, he's, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We have sort of a strange circumstance going on here. This idea that there were people that believed in Jesus, that, that believed in his name, they believed in him through the signs that he was doing. And yet there was something, something lacking here. We, we've seen faith so far in our, in our story. This isn't the first time we've encountered faith. If you look back at the, at the end, of, uh, end of chapter 1, we have this encounter with Nathaniel, where Nathaniel is is brought to Jesus, and 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 Jesus reveals to him that he saw him when he was under under the fig tree, and Nathaniel responds in in faith. He says, "You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel." And Jesus asks him, "Because you saw, you, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will you will see greater things than these." So there's a there's a there's a an aspect of faith here at the end of chapter 1. And then we, we saw it at the end of, uh, 
at the end of the, the sign of, of, the, of changing water into wine in Cana says in verse 11 of chapter 2 that Jesus did the first of his signs in Cana and Galilee, Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The implication is they believed in him because of the sign that he just done. he just done something miraculous, and that miraculous sign, that's what John calls it, he calls it a sign, and he says because of that miraculous sign, his disciples believed. You know, and we've mentioned this. I, I think every sermon has mentioned it. I'll mention it again. John tells us the purpose for which he wrote the gospel, and he says, I recorded these signs for you. And he uses that word. I recorded these signs for you. Jesus did many other signs that I could have recorded, but I, I chose these signs so that you would, that you would believe that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you would have life in His name. So it leaves us with a bit of a puzzle, doesn't it? I mean, we saw the disciples believing because of the sign. We see Nathaniel believing because of arguably a sign where Jesus is revealing something that he knows about Nathaniel that he wouldn't know if he were not divine. And then we see this group of people these, these many people who were at the feast in Jerusalem with Jesus, and they saw what he was doing. He said they, were, they, were, they, were, they saw the signs that he was doing. There's an implication there that, as John told us, there were other signs being performed by Jesus that, that aren't recorded here. That he was doing more things that were signs of who he was. In fact, there's a, there's a play on words here. You don't, it doesn't come across in... I tried to find an English translation that actually, that actually showed this play on words. I couldn't find one. ESV doesn't do it either. It says that, when, that many believe in his name. That comes from a Greek word that is pisteo, that means faith. We don't have a verb for faith. We don't, call, we don't say that people faithed, so we, it's believed. And then later on it says that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That word entrust is the same word. It's the same word. It's as if it says that they believed in him. They believed in his name because of the signs, but he did not believe in them. Or they had faith in him, but he didn't have faith in them. Or or they trusted him, but he didn't trust them. It's, uh, It's puzzling. I think what's being said here is that there was a preoccupation with signs. As if, as if the signs were, were, were somehow the end. As if, as if the, what Jesus did terminated in the signs. Maybe think of this. If, if you drive down Cherry Road and, and turn onto 77, there's a sign there, and I think it says Charlotte, right? It's as if when you got to that sign, you just stopped. And you say, I'm in Charlotte now. The sign says Charlotte. I must be in Charlotte. I think that's, in a sense, what is happening here. That's what's happening. They're, they're, they're terminating on the signs. They've seen the signs, and that's as far as they go. They don't go any further than the sign. It's a, it's a believing. It's a kind of believing that is somehow insufficient. D.A. Carson says that it's a believing that's inadequate or spurious, which is a fun word. It's a kind of, I guess you could call it easy believism. 
as if walking the aisle and signing a card, saying a prayer, that's it. You don't have to go any further than that. It's, it's a faith that is somehow deficient. A couple of other quotes about this. This is from a commentary by a fellow named Colin Cruz. He says this. He says, their trust in him, trust in quotes, their trust in him was not of a sort to make Jesus want to entrust himself to them. Evidently, the belief of these people, based on witnessing the signs Jesus performed, was shallow and inauthentic. Perhaps it stopped, it stopped at wonderment and did not progress to commitment. I'll say that again. I like that. Perhaps it stopped at wonderment and did not progress to commitment. Or this, this is from F.F. F. Bruce. He calls their faith superficial faith. He says, there are two levels of believing in Jesus' name. That's spoken of in John 1.12, which carries with it the authority to become God's children, and that's spoken of here. The former level involves unreserved personal commitment, the, the practical acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. But it will not be attained so long as we see the signs, but see not him. I'm going to say that again. This kind of saving, saving faith will not be attained so long as we see the signs, but see not him. It's, uh, it's sobering, isn't it? It's sobering for me that somehow there's, that you, can, you, can, you can take a step of faith and yet have that faith... Um, be insufficient, inadequate, spurious. Reminded me of uh, the parable of the soils. It's recorded in a couple of the Gospels. Um, this is from Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a story. Sower went out to sow, cast the seeds. Some of the sowed seeds fell on the path. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. Other seeds had a, had, fell into some soil that was shallow, and they, sprung, they sprang up for a while and then were scorched by the sun. And then there was a fourth kind of seed that fell into a, a fourth kind of soil that the seeds fell into. It fell on good soil and produced some 100-fold, some 60, some, some 30. The disciples, characteristically, weren't quite sure what he was talking about. And so they asked him, and he explained it this way. This is in verse 18 of chapter 13 of Matthew. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in him, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in, the case, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty and another 30. I suspect that's what's going on in this situation. That these many people who, quote unquote, believed, believed in a way that was like one of the first three soils. 
They believed superficially. They didn't believe in a way that was lasting. By the way, this, this idea, this concept isn't isolated to our text this morning. There's a, a fascinating te- text in John 8 that we'll get to, I don't know, sometime next year. So I'm, I'm pretty confident I can talk about it this morning and you won't remember a word I said about it. So that'll be, that's fine. Um, yeah, John chapter 8 says this. This is verse 30. As he was saying, Jesus, Jesus is teaching. And it says, as he was saying this thing, these, these things, many believed in him. Same words. Many believed. And then Jesus says this. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, same group, if you abide in my word... You're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's pretty, now, those are words we're familiar with. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a ringing endorsement. Jesus says, yeah, that's, this is awesome. But interesting, interestingly, what happens next is the people that he's talking to begin to argue with him about whether or not they are free, and that they're children of Abraham, and that who's he to tell them that they're, that they're not free? We're free. And the, and the conversation goes on. And by the time you get down to, uh, to verse 44, Jesus says this. Now, t- bear in mind, these are the same people that, that had believed. And Jesus says this to them in verse 44. Um, oh, I'll, we'll pick up in 43. Why do, you, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Same people. Who, who ver- just a few verses earlier, it says they believed. Jesus continued to speaking to these quote-unquote believers. And then by the time you get to the end of the chapter, he says this, whoever is of God, hears the word of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The same thing is happening here as is happening in our text this morning. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. They, in a sense, entrusted themselves to him, but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. This, this, uh, this, uh, this, this language of abiding that we saw in chapter 8, it reminded me of uh, Jesus when he's talking about that he's the vine and, and that his people are the branches and that those who abide in him bring forth fruit. I think that's the crucial difference. That the believing that doesn't bear fruit is not really believing. The believing is, that is not grounded, that is not, that is not attached to and abiding in the vine is not true believing. And it's not going to bear fruit. I came across this. This is I was actually listening or watching a, a video that was with with John Piper. Anton, sorry, I had to call out Anton. He lo- he loves John, and and he, I had to rewind it several times to get what he said because it, it, this is what he said, and I, I can't write fast enough to get it. He said the only faith that brings a person home to heaven is the faith, is faith that brings, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not saying it right. The only faith that brings a person home to heaven is faith that bears the fruit of obedience. The only faith that brings a person home to heaven is faith that bears the fruit of obedience. 
And what I want to say to you this morning is that Jesus is sovereign over all of that. That Jesus is, is decisive over all of that. This is what he says, I mentioned John 15. He says this in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's what, that's what it means to have true faith. And that true faith comes from Christ himself. He is sovereign over that faith. He's sovereign over our salvation. He's the one who's decisive. I think in a real sense, he's, he's the initiator. Again, John tells us in his first letter that we love because God first loved us. I think it's equally true that we trust, that we believe because Jesus first believed in us, that he was the initiator of our faith. And John tells us that he knows these things because he knew what was in people's hearts. And it does raise the question, at least it raises it for me, of of the idea of perseverance. We talk about perseverance of the saints, the, the, the once saved, always saved. I think there are two sides to that coin. I think what Jesus has said, or what John has told us this morning, reveals that to us. There's, there's the side of the coin that it, as in, it is in Matthew 24, where Jesus said, the one who endures to the end, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That, that there's an endurance that is required, that it's not just a once a one-time thing. It's not an, an easy believism that endurance is required. But Jesus also said this. This is from John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So which is it? Do we have to endure to the end, or are we secure in the hand of Jesus? Well, I think the answer is yes. Yes. We must endure to the end. And we endure to the end because we're in the hand of Jesus. And yet we must endure to the end. And if we, if we have one of side of the coin and not the other, we're, we're, we're missing something. We also get a glimpse of Jesus' sovereignty, His divinity here, is when it says that He knew it was in all people. We've seen that again earlier when He saw what was, what was happening with Nathaniel before Nathaniel showed up. It's an aspect of Jesus' divinity that He apparently retains in his human form. I think what, the takeaway at least, the takeaway for me is that this concept, this idea of, of a believing that is somehow insufficient is intended to be both a caution and a comfort. 
It's intended to be both a caution and a comfort. And I, I don't want to send you out here this morning questioning your salvation. But I do want to send you out this morning questioning your salvation, if that makes any sense. Am I bearing fruit in my life? Am I in a position where I can say that I've, I feel at this, I'm going to endure till the end and I feel secure in the hand of Jesus? This article came, it's always amazing to me the things that pop up in my social media that, that, that help me. It's the only reason I stay on Facebook. This came up. This is, a, this is from the Desiring God website. Um, it's an article entitled, For God So Warned the World. For God So Warned the World, How He Keeps the Ones He Loves. It's a, it's a trifle long, but bear with me. It's all good. He begins with the treasure, what he calls the treasured language of justification in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the true believer joined to Christ by faith, zero condemnation right now because of what Jesus has accomplished. We stand not guilty in the courtroom. And more than that, declared righteous through faith. Because of a work done outside of us, yet applied to us, all our sins are forgiven, our guilt taken, no condemnation. Some then take this promise, this glory, and infer that they're safe, already in heaven, with essentially nothing required of them until Jesus returns, nothing but sunny skies ahead. But such forecast changes as just a few verses later, in verse 13, talking to the same people. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death to deeds of the body, you will live. After telling them and us no condemnation exists in Christ, the Apostle Paul tells them, the same group he addressed in Romans 8.1, that if we live according to the flesh, we'll die, no matter what we profess about justification. Does our gospel-centeredness mute this warning? Do we skip over these verses? We shouldn't. Again, Paul warns, professing Christian, if you do not put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will surely die, meaning the eternal death of conscious punishment in hell. The true belief that no condemnation remains for them right now in Christ did not negate the true warning right now against living in sin. Now note, for those wondering about assurance, Paul will also soon remind us that all the truly justified, the same ones who persevere in killing their sin by the Spirit, will be glorified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified, Romans 8.30. And by the end of the chapter, he exclaims that nothing in all the universe can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So which is it? Do I believe I am free from condemnation or do I fear the possibility of condemnation? Both. We believe in the assurance Christ offers, and we fear turning from Him, being lured away by the flesh, the devil, and the world. God issues real warnings about hell to keep us from that very hell. They serve as real, not hypothetical means God uses for our perseverance. God promises, and God warns. To bring us home to himself safely. 
His precious and very great promises. Sing to us unseen realms where His glory dwells. Well, His thunder shakes us from early temptation, earthly temptations towards suicidal pleasures. All of His sheep will make it home, treasuring both His promises and His warnings. So I'm going to leave you with this this morning. It is, uh, it is Reformation Sunday. Reformation Day. It's not always a Sunday. Um, many of you know that Martin Luther uh, wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress. I think we're going to sing it this morning. But he wrote some 30-plus other hymns. So I'm going to leave you with this one. It's called Jesus Christ Who Came to Save. Jesus Christ, who came to save and overcame the grave, is now arisen, and sin hath bound in prison. Who without a sin was found bore our transgression's wound. He is our Savior and brings to us God's favor. Life and mercy, sin and death, all in His hands He hath. He can deliver all who trust Him forever. And each stanza ends with the Kyrie eleison. O Lord, have mercy. Pray with me. Father, we do beg for your mercy this morning. We, we rely and we rest in your mercy. And we thank you for Jesus, our, our Savior, who was sovereign both over his sacrifice and over our salvation. That our salvation ultimately doesn't depend on us. That He is decisive. That He entrusts Himself to us before we ever entrust ourselves to Him. We find security in that. But Lord, may we also heed the warnings. And may we, may we with all that is within us, endure till the end. May we, may we live lives that, that bear fruit because we are abiding in Jesus, because we're abiding in His Word. Lord, I, I pray that You would, would press these truths deep within us, that they would change us for Your honor and for Your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.